listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture reading today is Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord has made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it in your eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for the food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who gave, you gave to me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you, that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Get my clicker turned on here. Should work. All right. So before we get started today, I want to take like a minute or two to talk about sermons. And I know that it's kind of weird to talk about sermons during a sermon. That would be like seeing how they make the hot dog while you eat the hot dog, which is maybe not really appealing. Um, But I'm still somewhat new to all this, so I find it helpful. Um, So we'll start here. A lot of sermons, most sermons, are going to have a series of points that give the message structure. There's usually like a main point, two or three other points, nice, neat, easy to outline. Other sermons are a bit less structured. They're more like a journey through the text. Rather than having like point after point after point, the pastor and congregation essentially move together through the text. Um, They come from the text to real life and back again, hoping to glean little bits of wisdom along the way. This sermon's going to be more like that latter kind. We're in Genesis 3. Uh, it's a pretty well-known story where Adam and Eve literally ruin everything. And we're going to be journeying through this text together this morning. If you're hoping for like a real clearly outlined, structured message, like three things to know about sin, 
or five steps to sewing clothing out of fig leaves. That's not going to be what we get today. Um, But I do think we'll learn something along the way that will hopefully impact our view of God and sin and what it is to be human. Does that sound good? All right. So when we, last, when we last left Adam and Eve, our two main characters, life was pretty good. Um, the man and the woman are partners together in paradise in the Garden of Eden. They're charged with caring for creation. Um, they have this very intimate relationship with each other. And that intimacy flows into their relationship with God. God speaks to them directly. God walks with them through the garden. There's plenty of food to go around. There's no death or disease. Life is good. Here's a diagram that I like to use. It essentially summarizes the state of humanity at the end of Genesis 2, kind of leading into our passage for today. Adam and Eve both have a perfect relationship with God, the earth, other people, each other, and themselves. And we know the human beings have peace with themselves by that last line in Genesis 2, which tells us that the man and the woman are naked but unashamed. The peace that human beings enjoy with God and with each other is reflected in this inner peace, this right relationship with the self. This is how the Bible understands peace, or shalom. It's about everything being in right relationship to everything else. And over the course of Genesis 3, all of this is going to start to fall apart. We meet a new character, the serpent, And the text tells us that the serpent is more crafty than any other animal the Lord God has made. Now, there's a play on words happening here. There's a a pun in the Hebrew. The author is being punny. Oh, did I miss it? I think I missed the slide. Joni, can you go back a couple? One more. There we go. Yeah, the Hebrew is being punny. There's a play on words here. The Hebrew word for crafty, aram, and naked, aramim, sound very similar. Adam and Eve are Aramim, but the serpent is Aram. That's our first clue that something's up. There's trouble brewing. The man and woman are exposed. They're innocent, and they're about to encounter a creature that knows more about the world than they do. Now, this is a pretty familiar story to many many of us. If you grew up in church, you know Adam and Eve. But the problem with familiar stories is we know them so well, we've heard them told so many times, that we often already have this version of the story that exists in our heads, kind of separate from the text. And more often than not, that version of the story actually isn't so much reflected in the text. For example, who is the serpent? Anybody, who is the serpent? The devil, the devil, Satan, right? Yeah. Except there's no indication in the text that the serpent is Satan. Or that the serpent, I don't know what's happening with slides today. Ooh. Joni, can you just go to that slide with Adam and Eve and the snake? I don't know what's happening today. All right, sorry. There's no indication in the text that, Satan, that the serpent is Satan or any sort of demonic being. In fact, it actually tells us explicitly the serpent is an animal. This is one of the many wild animals created by God. Later, Jewish and Christian interpretation would identify the serpent with the devil, with Satan. But the book of Genesis doesn't actually do that. 
And when we look at other ancient stories from this time, the Epic of Gilgamesh would be one famous example. There's often a trickster character, someone who trips up humanity in some way, usually ruining everything. And oftentimes, in this culture especially, that trickster character was a snake or a serpent. So the first hearers of this story would have known what was going on right away. It would have been very familiar to them. And by the way, in a lot of African cultures, um, snakes are actually a sign of blessing or of strength. So when missionaries set out to translate the Bible into different African languages, they found this whole snake thing didn't really work. People were getting the wrong idea when the snake entered the scene. So the missionaries started asking the local people to tell them their stories, their stories about the world, how things came to be the way they are. And they discovered that the trickster character in African creation stories is usually a rat. And so to this day, in many African translations of the Bible, it's actually a rat that Adam and Eve encounter, not a snake, which I just found interesting. If we updated it for today, it'd probably be like a cat, because cats are the devil. Um, <clears throat> now, this, sorry, sorry, any cat people? I, I apologize. I'm, I'm really allergic, so. Now, this whole exchange between Eve and the serpent is just fascinating. Eve's the only one who talks to the serpent, and we don't know why. Maybe Adam was afraid of snakes. We don't know. But we do know that Adam is present for this conversation. Adam is there, and we know that for a couple reasons. For one, the text tells us in verse 6 that Adam was there. Her husband was with her. And we also know Adam is present because whenever the serpent says you, it's the plural form of you. Hebrew, like, like most languages other than English, has a plural form of you. I think the closest we get would be y'all, and it's y'all in this passage. And almost nothing that's said in this exchange between Eve and the serpent is accurate. The serpent asks, did God really say y'all couldn't eat from any trees in the garden? Which is a ridiculous question, right? God's first command to human beings in Genesis 2 is to eat, to eat freely from any tree in the garden except for one. This is a really generous picture of God. But the serpent's question calls that generosity into question. And Eve's response does something very similar. We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. God never said anything about touching the tree. You can go back to Genesis 2 and check if you want. Eve amps up this restriction, making God sound even more harsh. There's this sense where even before Adam and Eve eat the fruit, a crack has already begun to form in the relationship between humanity and God. They're beginning to question God's goodness, question God's generosity, question if God can really be as good as God seems to be. And the serpent plays on those insecurities brilliantly. The serpent promises that if Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruits, they'll be like God. And there's something really ironic to that promise. These two people walk with God literally. God speaks to them directly. They're partners with God in caring for the earth. They're created in God's image by God's own hands. 
No two people in history have ever been more like God than these two people. And yet it's still not quite enough. Eve looks at the tree. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. This is a good example of how idioms don't always translate from language to language. Um, There's a lot of things we say every day, things that we understand what it means, but it doesn't so much work if you translate it to another language. Something like beat around the bush, or that's a piece of cake, or break a leg. You translate that to another language, it gets really hazy. And the Hebrew here uses an idiom that's kind of weird in English. I'm going to try to advance the slide, but we'll see if it goes nuts. We don't usually think this way, but this is how the, the Hebrew puts it. It doesn't say that the fruit is a delight to the eyes. It says that the tree was a lust to the eyes. Eve lusts after this tree. Now, that's weird to us, because we usually think about lust in terms of sex. But that's actually a really narrow view of lust, and it really kind of gets at what's going on here. Eve, and presumably also Adam, who was with her, sees the tree. They lust after it. That lust turns to desire, and then they take. The first sin isn't really eating the fruit. It's objectifying it. This tree is the one thing in all creation that's supposed to exist independently of human involvement. But Adam and Eve turn that tree into an object of desire, and then they take from it. They exploit it. They objectify it. They violate this tree and take its fruit because they think it will give them power. Are we preaching yet? A lot of times when we read this text, we tend to think of ourselves as like we're Adam and Eve. But if you come from a marginalized people group, if, you're, if you've been poor, if you're a person of color, if you're female, you probably know what it's like to be this apple to have your will and your individuality stripped away by someone with power. This is our original sin. To see something or someone that God has created, that God loves, something that has inherent value simply for being a part of God's good creation and exploiting it. Turning it into an object of desire that exists for us. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, do you all remember that pun from earlier, from the beginning of our passage? Ah, we went too far again. There we go. That pun, Aram and Aramim, the words for clever and naked. Well, that play on words comes back here in a big way when Adam and Eve eat the fruit. The human beings eat the fruit with the promise that they'll become Aram, that they will become clever or wise, crafty like the serpent. But when they take a bite, their eyes are opened, and they see that they're really Aramim, naked. Personally, I can relate to this one. For me, it's usually a piece of cake, um, like literally a piece of cake, not figuratively. I'll be having a really healthy day, uh, feeling good. I ate well. I maybe worked out. And then somebody offers me a piece of cake. And I'm like, I can eat that. I've earned this. I'm, I'm healthy today. I'm going to eat this cake. And then I eat it, and I feel miserable. I feel sick. My gut kind of bloats out. I get in that semi-comatose state when you've had too much sugar. And when I thought I was so healthy, and I could eat this cake, 
just because of how healthy I am, I suddenly realize how unhealthy I am. There are a lot of temptations that work like this. Something looks good. It looks appealing. But if we take it, it's going to eat away at us. Affairs work like this. Um, It could be a promotion that you'll do anything to get. We stumble upon something that we think will give us power, that we think will make us happy. But there's always a cost. It eats away a part of our humanity. We lose something that we can never get back. This story is introducing us to a reality that is central to our experience as human beings, a reality that people of faith call sin. On a fundamental level, sin is just the breakdown of relationships. It's a violation of our relationship with God, with the earth, with other people, with ourselves. Do you remember this little diagram? Well, in the next part of the story, all these perfect little relationships fall apart as sin kind of spreads and invades. It starts with the self. Adam and Eve see that they're naked and they feel ashamed. That inner peace, that innocence from Genesis 2 is gone. The next thing that's affected is our relationship with God. The man and woman hear God walking through the garden and they hide. Where once there was a sense of partnership and trust, now there's fear. And when God confronts Adam and Eve, we see sin creep into their relationship as well, the relationship between the two humans, as they turn on each other and start placing blame. Eve blames Adam, or sorry, backwards. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. Our relationship with others is broken. And of course, if you know this story, you know how it ends. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. A wedge drives apart humanity, and creation. And the curses God issues in verses 14 and 19, which we're not going to get into today, they really just take all these broken relationships and drive them further apart. This is what sin looks like. Rebellion, objectification, the loss of shalom. When the ancient Israelites, when our forefathers in the faith expressed what they saw as the central problem plaguing humanity, this is the story they told. And it's worth pointing out that in spite of how old this story is, thousands of years old, it doesn't feel foreign, at least not to me. It doesn't feel dated or backwards or hard to relate to. This way of talking about sin and human brokenness is as relevant today as ever. I know that I feel this. I wrestle with this almost every day, this gulf between myself and other people and God and the earth. The story ends on a real downer, but there is still a sense of grace here, a trickle of hope in this otherwise bleak story. God makes clothes for Adam and Eve. One last act of creation in these opening chapters before God and human beings are driven apart. Now, these clothes are made out of animal skins. Adam and Eve made their own out of fig leaves. God makes them out of skins. So something has to die for this to happen. This is the first reference to death we have in the scriptures, and it won't be the last. But for God, the man and the woman are worth it. God doesn't send them into the world naked and ashamed. He clothes them 
God addresses that inward sense of shame, our broken relationship with ourselves, and there's hope that maybe God can do something about these other relationships as well. Now, when Christians talk about sin, oh, too far. Oh, boy. There we go. When Christians talk about sin, we tend to focus on this top relationship between us and God. And that's important. That's, that's essential. It's just not the whole story. Our understanding of a problem will determine the shape of the solution. Our understanding of sin determines our understanding of salvation. If we have a thin view of sin that ignores any area of our life that sin infects, we're going to have a thin view of the gospel. This story calls us to a thicker understanding of sin, of brokenness, so that we can receive the breadth of salvation available in Christ. Jesus repairs our relationship with God. That's the obvious one. If you've spent any time in church, you've heard that story. But in his life and ministry, Jesus also brings restoration to every single other area of our life that's been affected by sin. Jesus tackles our broken relationship with nature, calming storms, healing diseases. He casts out demons and restores outsiders to community. He stands for justice and against exploitation. Jesus feeds people. And he calls broken human human beings to find peace and rest in him. Maybe you've been made to believe that God is a tyrant, a vengeful, stingy deity just waiting for you to mess up. Maybe you don't really buy this generous God stuff, and your first inclination when you hear God coming is to run and hide. Here's a a story about a generous God who meets us in our own brokenness and offers grace. Or maybe you're good with God. You've been in church most of your life, you've received forgiveness, but you still haven't forgiven yourself. Whatever it is that God sees in you, that God loves in you, that God finds worthy of relationship with you, you struggle to see in yourself. If you've been a Christian for six days or 60 years, Maybe this story is calling you to find peace with yourself. Or maybe it's someone else you're struggling against. A parent, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, someone here in this church. I've heard that happens. A person who puts you on edge, who throws your mistakes in your face, who hurls accusations at you and tempts you to do the same. Or maybe you're struggling against nature, aging, Sickness, the weather, overconsumption of resources, whatever brokenness happens to be showing up in your life today, God is calling us through this story and through Christ to find rest, to find peace and restoration. God is inviting us into right relationships. That's really what the gospel comes down to. God is calling us to not be like Adam and Eve, but to reclaim what has been lost. May we hear that call this morning and receive that grace in our lives. Let's pray. God, we offer our brokenness to you. We confess our sins, the ways we have exploited others, betrayed ourselves, abused your earth, and rebelled against you. 
We ask that you would restore us, Lord, that you would heal us. We invite you to invade whatever corners of our lives we've kept hidden from you. We thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for your grace. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.